either one of these any good? Wow, this is a good movie. It's pretty good. Well, the director from yesterday doesn't think so. It stinks. You sorry. You waste all our film. <laughs> it's so bad. Well, it's the counterpoint to last week's famine. We have a feast <laughs> this week. We had one big movie, really one movie, yeah. period, yeah. last week with It Chapter 2. Making up for it this week, we have got a few, more than a few. Welcome. This is the Screening Room Podcast, and she is Hope Madden. He's George Wolf, And we're from MadWolf.com. Thank you for checking out the Screening Room. We're going to start out with a movie inspired by a New York Magazine article. It follows a crew of savvy former strip club employees who band together to turn the tables on their Wall Street clients, hustlers. I just want to take care of my grandma, maybe go shopping every once in a while. When I was a kid, I always wanted to work with animals. <laughs> I was close. These Wall Street guys. You see what they did to this country? They stole from everybody. Hardworking people lost everything. And not one of these douchebags went to jail. The game is rigged, and it does not reward people who play by the rules. But it's like robbing the bank, except you get the keys. Are you in? I tell you what. Yeah. I did not have high expectations for this movie, and it 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 made me ashamed of that. Yeah, yeah, it's really a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. I I don't think my expectations were as low as yours right. were, but I really didn't expect it to be this good. Yeah, and this uh, enjoyable. Mm-hmm. It is. It is based and on, smart and well yes, put together. Well, very well put together. It's based on a magazine article that was uh, a true story. Uh, that told about strippers from the famous strip club Scores in New York City. In the movie, it's called Moves, Mm -hmm. but pretty much the same deal. And one of the first things and one of the main things that that the movie does right, it's writer-director Lorene Scafarino. Mm-hmm. who did, a few years ago, she did uh, Seeking a Friend for the End, end of the, of the World, world sure. which was fun. Yeah, and the meddler and with the meddler, Susan Sarandon yeah, a couple years ago. Yeah, which didn't do so well. Anyway, one of the best things she does in adapting this is tell it from the point of view of, I would say, the main character, sure, Destiny, yeah. mm-hmm. who's played by Constance Wu of Crazy Rich Asians. And the narrative is grounded in her telling her story, after this has all gone down, to a magazine writer played by Julia Stiles. And one of the first things that Destiny says to the reporter is that you don't have to believe me. I'm used to people not believing me. So right there, it tells you that you're going to get this story, this whole caper and how it was hatched and who's to blame and what happened through this person's perspective. So take that for what you will. It could be reliable. It could be unreliable. And I think that gives the movie a real fun freedom that it takes advantage of. I mean, it, it's not as if the suggestion is that she's lying. It's just that everybody perceives sure. their own life differently than everybody else perceives the same situation. And it, you told the story from the point of view of one of the the bilked, you know, then these women would come off much worse than they do. And one of the things that I, I thought was particularly worthwhile about the point of view is that it gave Jennifer Lopez an opportunity to really dig in because she plays a character that is being told from the point of view of one person. And then there are also a handful of scenes that are told from not necessarily her character's perspective, Ramona's perspective, but the perspective of the interviewer. So she gets to be, it's, it's very nuanced. It's a surprisingly nuanced Performance. And one of the other things I liked about the movie is that because it is told from the point of view of the women involved, you don't get that sort of catty, bitchy. I mean, they were very 
friendly with each other. They were very, it was a very positive relationship that these women had amongst themselves. Yeah, and you mentioned J-Lo, and she is really, really good. She is. Um, All these years of bad movies and just becoming really a pop culture staple has probably made a lot of people, myself included, Mm -hmm. forget that she was good even before all this. You go back to, I keep thinking about Out of Sight. Absolutely. She was very good, and Mm -hmm. here she is very good. She's got a great character. Yes, she does. Because she plays, as you said, Ramona, and she is the the legend at the strip club. Uh, The the newbie, Destiny, uh, comes in and just looks up to her, and Ramona ends up taking her under her wing and telling her not only the the tricks of doing a good performance, but the tricks of how to pick out the most wealthy Wall Street D-bags for you to take as much money as you possibly can from them. And because she's teaching Destiny, she's teaching us, too. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing is that that's a good starting point, because eventually, once the uh, once the recession hits and the Wall Street D-bags are no longer giving out mm-hmm. the kind of money that they used to be, mm-hmm. you know, and then the strip club kind of falls into some hard times, and they start making some adjustments so that they can keep their business going that certainly would not make life any easier for a stripper. And so, but that that very sort of the philosophy of get what you can from these guys then fuels the rest of the story so that it doesn't ever feel, it doesn't feel out of left field, you know? Um, Well, obviously, it isn't. It happened. (laughs) Right. And also because it's written and directed by a woman, it's got a nice perspective that doesn't view all these strippers as trash. No. Uh, and now they, not to say that they didn't have some degrading moments Or that in their some job. of these people are trash. Yeah. You know, they do. It's like, that's funny because they, as you would in any, you know, job that you have, you sift through the people that yeah. you work with who are worthwhile and the ones who really you probably don't want to have a personal relationship right. with. I mean, no matter what your job is, you've got those people. Yeah. And it's, it's really well put together. The, the pace seems very fast. Yes. I mean, it, it just moves. Yeah, it does. And it has a lot of memorable sequences, a lot of them having to do with songs. Oh, There's yeah. Some great, great song choices. Great so- soundtrack choices. And a lot of the sequences with music will, understandably, um, Anytime you're talking about scenes like that, remind you of Scorsese in, in certain uh, instances because he loves to use the soundtrack and the popular songs mm-hmm. like that. But also, we were we, we didn't know this beforehand, but at the end, during the credits, we saw the names uh, Will Ferrell and Adam McKay pop up as executive producers. And that made a lot of sense because this movie is also quite funny. And it has a lot of the humor that you saw in The Big Short. Yeah, it's got, I feel like, I mean, clearly the Scorsese uh, influence is there. But I, I really, it did remind me at several points of, of The Big Short in the way it is entertainingly pissed off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's not to say that uh, Scarfaria doesn't have her own vision. She, yeah, she very does. much does. It, she very much does. And uh, it, it really comes through in, in the style of this movie. It's just, it's really just a gas. I mean, from start to finish. I actually think that her, in a lot of ways, I think that her approach is more even-handed than, for example, McKay's tends to be. Because, you know, there are a couple of scenes, especially late late in the film, where a couple of cops are talking about what happened. And and it's really at that point that, that it occurred to me that at no point in the film did we see the spectacle of these mostly naked women from the point of view of a man. Mm-hmm. And and really, other than, you know, the, the people that they were fleecing, the point of view of a man is completely unimportant 
to the the people in the film because because it was because it would be. But I don't think that that happens very often in a movie. Yeah, and uh, certainly not a movie that's centered on strippers. Right. Well, that's so, another that's another bonus of having a woman. Yeah. Be the writer director mm-hmm. here. because the, she isn't yeah. she isn't preoccupied with the fact that exactly. what are these women doing in terms of how men are viewing what they're doing mm-hmm. and that, I think that it's hard to separate that when their whole job is specifically about how men are viewing them that's literally what their job is and she manages to skirt that without feeling false right. or forced and in fact I didn't even think about it until a very funny scene with cops yeah and then it but it does give nods to how they are treated by the men in the club. Oh, and yeah. then how that job affects their relationships outside the club. It, right. it gives a little bit of a nod to that as well. But there, you're going to see some uh, some famous faces in that play the other strippers. You got people like Cardi B, oh, yeah. Lizzo. Is in there. Lizzo, and her flute, and her uh, flute in there as well. Kiki Palmer, you might recognize, and some others. So it's a really entertaining group of people. And then once since they're telling this story from the vantage point of after it has already happened. Once you see it all come crashing down, that's when the moral ambiguities uh, start being strewn about. And you realize that their their rationale is, hey, these Wall Street, they screwed over everybody yeah. with this with this uh, collapse. Mm-hmm. And we're just screwing them over. But you know what? I think that there is a moment in the film where they introduce one character and you think to yourself, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, it's it, it is. It's gone too far. You no matter no matter what the population is, it's inaccurate to see all of them with with one view. And and the moment that you're talking about is really really affects one character in a yeah, certain way. It yeah. really does. So yeah, uh, all in all, we really enjoyed this more than we thought we yep. would. And uh, big recommendation. J Lo, the whole cast is good. Yeah, really, yeah. J Lo and Constance Wu have a great chemistry together. They do. They really do. And J Lo has a fantastic character to really dig into. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, we've gone this far without saying it, but she just turned 50 years old and she looks fantastic. She does. I mean, which is, I guess you, you probably should if you're going to be a stripper. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we recommend Hustlers. Next, it's another based-on-a-true-story story. A young woman decides to make positive changes in her life by training for the New York City Marathon. Brittany runs a marathon. Let's get you healthy. I want you to try losing 55 pounds. That's the weight of a Siberian Husky. You want me to pull a medium-sized working dog off of my body. I'm starting to feel like everyone's lives are going places, and mine's sort of stuck. I need to get a teeny bit healthier. We have rates as low as $129 a month. You do know that people can run outside. That is zero. I'm black. I ran today. Why the hell you do that? Somebody chasing you or something? I'm done with the drinking. I'm done with the smoking. 50,000 people from around the world are racing today. I want to run the New York City Marathon. I think that is such a good idea. My whole life, the world told me I was lazy because the way I looked. I was trying to turn my life around. Everything's going to be fine. People held doors for me. I'll hold doors for you. This is my last word. You changing your life was never about your weight. Hold it, please. It was about you taking responsibility for yourself. First thing about this movie is that it's a real breakout, finally lead. I don't know that she's ever been a lead before. I don't think so. For Jillian Bell who, if you don't know her name, you know her face. (laughs) She has really played the overweight, funny sidekick friend for years now. She owns that. She owns that character because one of the things that she, I think she brings to that and and everything I've seen her in is uh, a funny meanness about it. (laughs) Yeah. And that really comes in in handy here because of what this, the story this movie is telling. It is, it's based on a, a true life 
friend of the writer-director. His name is Paul Downs Calizo, Calazzo. Uh, and he's a playwright. He's written some TV. He's doing his first feature. And he was inspired by a really good friend of his, also named Brittany, who took control of her life by many things. But one of the things was making a commitment to fitness, a commitment to running, and a goal to run the New York City Marathon. And so he built this movie around that idea. So uh, that's who Jillian Bell plays, Brittany, whose life is kind of a mess. I mean, yeah, she's out of sorts and she's out of shape and uh, she's got, she kind of is used by everyone around her. She's got a person that she thinks is her best friend, but, you know, not really. Uh, and she's used by randos and she's just needs to really get a handle on things and eventually slowly commits to running. I think one of the things that you pointed out um, earlier today w- w- that is maybe the most, for me, most important thing about this movie, because I hate makeover mm-hmm, movies mm-hmm. so deeply, yep. is to point out that's not what this is. Right. It's not, it's not, she gets hot, everything turns out fine for right. her. You know, it's like she's she's making this commitment, and, and in doing so, she's not drinking like she used to, because she's got to get up and run 13 miles in the morning, and she's not using drugs, and she's... So that all just right there means that she's she's hanging out with different people, and what all of that does is it sort of breaks down all of the barriers that she had to just looking at herself. She had put up all of these walls, being drunk and hot, and mm-hmm. eating good things, and comfort foods. You know, it was a way for her to not pay attention to what was actually wrong with her. Yeah. And so it's really it's it's much more about the character arc. It's much more about Brittany understanding Brittany than yeah. it is Brittany getting hot so that some other people like her. Exactly right. Because we've seen that makeover fantasy so many times and it's so shallow. And and this is not this. It, it's interesting. It's it's really funny in the first third of the movie. Yeah. But the more it goes along with this character transformation, the less funny it gets. But that doesn't mean it's less enjoyable. Oh, no. It because really isn't. One of the things that happens with that is that you get the... Because we know, if you've seen her, you know she's funny. Yeah. But what you... As the as the character arc changes and the tone of the film changes, you get to see that she's actually a very good actor. She is. And you see her, the actress, transform as well because mm-hmm. she really did get into running. And as her character is getting in shape, obviously, so is she. She lost about 40 pounds herself doing this and also she she falls in with a couple of running pals and they are played by micah stock and michaela watkins can we just give we talk a lot about that guy yeah Michaela Watkins is a that girl, and yes. she's and she's always good. She is. She's in she, everything. You'll she, know her face, you and will. you won't be able to. Where did I see her? <laughs> exactly. But you see her again here, and one of these days, maybe she'll get a big lead That's breakout. Right. But money bags, Martha. But <laughs> yeah. But until then, she's always solid support, and that's part of this transformation. Brittany has to realize that she's worthy of people being her friend. And to to let go of her self-loathing and make emotional growth mm-hmm. as she's losing all these pounds. It's a lot more complex than just a makeover fantasy. Yeah. And that's what makes it so more real and so heartwarming. And I, I wouldn't call it a romantic comedy, but there is. She uh, Brittany takes a job house-sitting during the day. And the guy who house-sits at night just pretty much lives at mm-hmm. his house. And uh, his name is Jern. He's played by Utkarsh Ambukar, hopefully pronounced that right, who's very good. Yes. And they also have a great chemistry. They do. So there's a little bit of will there, won't there, what's going on there. But still, I wouldn't pigeonhole this as a romantic comedy no. at all. But interestingly enough, it's, it kind of reminded me of one of the best romantic comedies I've seen in years from a few years ago, The Big Sick, mm. in that it just made you 
appreciate, yes, this is possible to do right. and, and make it authentic and make it really a feeling type of story. And it, it was one that just left me hopeful that these types of stories can be told in the right filmmaker's hands. Right. It was a surprise in a lot of ways, but it was, again, it was just a really well-made film. Yeah, and I would not be surprised maybe to see Jillian Bell remembered at awards time, and, mm. and, and maybe even the script. We'll see. Mm-hmm. We'll see how crowded the field is. But she's great, and she really drives this movie, and it's another uh, big recommendation for Brittany Runs a Marathon. Next up, another one we liked a lot. This has turned out to be a good week. Yeah. It's a dark fairy tale about a gang of five children trying to survive the horrific violence of the cartels and the ghosts created every day by the drug war. It's called Tigers Are Not Afraid. Los tigres no tienen miedo. You know, I think right away, this film will probably remind you of Pan's Labyrinth mm-hmm. or of something del Toro-esque mm-hmm. because it's it's a dark fairy tale is what it is. But uh, Issa Lopez, the director and writer, grounds it in very, very modern times. Whereas, you know, in Pan's Labyrinth, in Devil's Backbone and, and in the, the more sort of fairy tale-esque del Toro films, they benefit from history because a lot of, it's a lot easier to do it when you have like you know long ago, mm-hmm. and this is just uh, an image, really a very strangely enough not romanticized, regardless of the fact that there's very a lot of fantastical elements. Image of what happens during the drug war with the the, the children who are left behind. They're yeah. just left behind. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's bullet spray down a street, and uh, you kill a bunch of parents, and and if there's no infrastructure in the town, their kids are just home alone, and mm-hmm. then eventually. They're out of food, Home Alone, and it's it's such a heartbreaking and somehow gloomily beautiful film. Yeah, and it's also you made another good point uh, in when talking about this in your in your written review about it plays on another theme that we've seen in in movies, Spanish language movies yeah. that have to do with uh, uh, the Mexico's disposable population. Yeah, I think that it is, um, and and this I'm not sure this is centered in Mexico. Mexico, I don't know. It's it's somewhere but, in yeah. Latin America, but it is I think for Sp- Spanish language horror. That is very often a theme that's brought up. Uh, we are what we are. Does it beautifully? Uh, we are the flesh. Mm-hmm. Does it? It's a little bit more flawed, but it's the same idea. Mm-hmm. It is. It is what happens with these people who are left, who really are there. There. There are no resources for them to take care of themselves. Right. And uh, and this one because it's centered on really like you know eight, nine, ten year old kids. Yeah. It is. It is particularly moving. You're really, really brought into it, but also because they are children, the fantastical elements feel so much more at home. Well, they never feel forced. And you just talked, we just talked last week about the diff, one of the big differences between It Chapter 1 and It Chapter 2 is because children in peril are so much more terrified. Yes, they are. Because, you know, y- they're helpless and you feel for them, but also I think we can all remember it's so, the world is so scary when you're little. Yeah. Yeah, exactly right. So this one, I, I believe, is it not? It might be on Shutter right now. It is now also as well. on Shutter. Yeah, it premieres on Shutter this week, mm-hmm. uh, but you can also find it in limited release theatrically. And if you and if you get a chance to see it theatrically, it is a a fascinating looking film. It's definitely worth seeing it on a big screen. But you know what? If it's not in your area, don't miss it on Shutter. Exactly, and that's Tigers Are Not Afraid. 
Let's go to a documentary next with one of the most memorably stunning voices that has ever hit the airwaves. Linda Ronstadt burst onto the 1960s folk rock music scene in her early 20s and carved out a legendary career. This is Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. Linda could literally sing anything. Would you welcome, please, Linda Ronstadt? Linda was the queen. She was like what Beyonce is now. She came to L.A. when the rock and roll scene was in gear and was going. It was a place to play. Linda was a very determined woman. I knew she was going to be a big star. Linda is such a perfectionist. She's a pain in the ass sometimes. She was the only female artist to have five platinum albums in a row. The winner is Linda Ronstadt. It was like bang. Yeah, baby. She was the first female rock and roll star. Try following Linda Ronstadt every night. This is from co-directors Rob Epstein and Jeffrey Friedman, and they've been wanting to do this project and wanting to get Linda Ronstadt on board. And from what I've read, she balked at it until they said, look, you'll you'll tell the story on your own terms. You'll, you'll define it and you'll tell it. And that's the ironic thing about this movie, because as you may have heard, she doesn't sing anymore. She right. can't sing anymore. Uh, she hasn't been in, performed in public since 2012 after her Parkinson's disease diagnosis. But it's her speaking voice that is the guide through this film. And so anytime there's a bio like this or a documentary and you have the person involved you know, giving complete blessing to it, you're going to have, on one hand, it may not be as personal, it's not going to dig deep no. into personal details, no. and this certainly does not, but at the same time, you get some fantastic archival footage and her perspective from day one, uh, not only growing up and getting into the business, but then having to navigate being a quote-unquote queen in a king's game of 1970s mm -hmm. music scene. And some of it is absolutely fascinating. And, and she did, for people that might be, I don't know, anyone under 40, might have forgotten. What I would a, go 50. Okay. <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> career she had. The voice, fantastic. But even if you didn't like the music, and she did so many different styles, she was just so incredibly successful. She had hits on the R&B, country, and pop chart all at the same time. She had uh, a record-breaking, at the time, string of platinum albums for uh, a female. Then, once the 80s hit, she started doing the other stuff, the, the, the lush arrangements with Nelson Riddle. She did, to honor her, her father's heritage, she did these uh, Spanish-language albums. She did more country with Dolly Parton, Amy Lou Harris. All these things, and almost all of them, were incredibly successful. And to dig into it and, and see how she dealt with that fame and all that was going on around her, the sexism, both casual. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of anecdotes she tells that are really funny. And the systemic uh, sexism that sure. she's bound to, bound to face and how they wanted to sex her up and to sell her and things like that. But if you lived through the 70s, you remember she was everywhere. And, of course, her backing band, a couple of members of her backing band, went on to start a little group called the Eagles. Uh, <laughs> so there's just she was just there in the center of all this growth of the music scene in the 1970s. So especially if you're a Linda Ronstadt fan. Do not miss it. But really a music fan in general, especially of the classic rock or that type of eras. And there's been a lot lately. This yep. year has seen a lot. Yes. Not only documentaries, but narrative films oh, sure. about this type of music. But this is one, even though it's it's less personal. They don't even interview Jerry Brown. You know, she had that very, very public um, relationship with Governor Jerry Brown when he was running for president. 
Uh, just really a casual mention of that and doesn't get into anywhere that she doesn't want to go. Right, right. But that is her prerogative. And there's really just a bittersweet moment at the end because, as I said, you probably heard she doesn't, can't sing anymore. And then toward the end, there's a a bit about her harmony. She's just gently harmonizing with the nephew. And you're thinking, well, she can sing. And then she instantly dismisses it. Well, that's not really singing. And mm. you get the feeling that that really drove her throughout her entire career. As successful as she was, she always had this nagging feeling somehow that she just wasn't good enough. And it's amazing from afar to look at someone that successful and think that. And it's a, it's a little bit of a uh, the, the best glimpse really inside her her psyche that the movie gets. So even though it's a little less personal, I would still recommend it for the for the access to uh, Linda Ronstadt, The Sound of My Voice. <laughs> Moving on, look, it's that time of year again. On Halloween, a group of friends encounter an extreme haunted house that promises to feed on their darkest fears. What? The night turns deadly as they come to the horrifying realization that some nightmares are real. This one is called Haunt. One of these every year, don't we? It seems like it. Yes, we. I mean, we do. We actually do. <laughs> uh, you know, 31 a couple years ago, the houses October built one and two. Hellfest. Hellfest. Oh, that was a mess. That was by no means the worst of those. I thought the houses October built, the first one was not that bad. Yeah, no, a lot of them are not that bad. One of the, What I think is interesting about this yearly foray into this idea is that none of them have been very successful. Uh, and so to do it again every year is so optimistic. It's almost adorable. <laughs> this one is from the the co-writers of A Quiet Place, uh, who also direct. Scott Beck and Brian Woods. And uh, the first thing that I thought about in watching this movie was, I don't think we gave John Kaczynski quite enough credit <laughs> for A Quiet Place. A qu- quiet Place, yeah. yeah. It's, I mean, there's nothing wrong with this movie. Uh, it's incredibly predictable. It's exactly what you think it's going to be, right? It's just a handful of very attractive college students on Halloween night looking for some thrills, they stumble across uh, out, you know, far from town, a uh, Halloween haunted house to go through. And here's right here, George. Not one person there on Halloween night. Yeah. So it's either the worst haunted house attraction ever or everyone's dead. <laughs> what are you thinking? <laughs> so they go through it and, you know, it's it's, you know, they die one after another. And then, uh, you know, the the young damaged but wholesome female lead has to figure out how to get out and survive it all. And so again, I mean, there's, there's really nothing new here. They make some tweaks to the concept. We don't have, as I know, the ones that drove you the most crazy in, in Hellfest. Oh, that couple. Yeah. They couldn't, you just go, you, you, you actually, I mean, you don't live at your parents' house. You have your own room with a door. You don't have to make out in public. Yeah. They don't have that. I mean, the, the, and the performances are pretty solid. They really are. And the scares are fine. And it's, you know, it's very economical. They obviously did not have a lot of money. My guess is that they probably made this before A Quiet Place. So it's pretty well contained. And they, but, you know, so I'm saying, like, 
good for you. It's a perfectly <laughs> capably made derogatory film. One thing that surprised me a little bit was the R rating. I thought maybe if they'd have got it down to PG-13 and tried to go for that junior high type horror, they might get a few more dollars, a few more butts in the seats. But sometimes you don't know. But it is an R. It is an R. And um, and that's for, you know, uh, I think that there are a couple of sequences where they try to push the envelope a little bit. And, you know, for my taste, good for you. But it's just, in the end, there's nothing that really sets it apart from from any of the others. And, you know, to be honest, now that you say that about PG-13, it's considerably less brutal than uh, most of the films that we ran through at the beginning of this conversation. So it's it's kind of funny. They might have done better, actually, going PG-13. Mm-hmm. And that is Haunt. Let's stay scary for the next one. A disillusioned field surgeon suffering from PTSD makes a man out of body parts and brings him to life in a Brooklyn loft. It's depraved. I figured out how to bring them back. And so it begins. Here we have man's essential impulse. Violence. Depraved. That's what we are. Utterly depraved. (laughs) It was you. It was you who made me what I am. Well, horror fans, true horror fans, we know the name Larry Fessenden. Oh, yes. And if you don't know the name, you know the face. If you think to yourself, who's that actor who looks like... Jack, Jack Nicholson. Nicholson's homeless brother. <laughs> he looked like he's trying to do a Jack Nicholson impression. <laughs> well, That's Larry Fessenden. Yeah. And he's in tons and tons of horror movies. And he's the writer-director. He is the writer-director. Mm-hmm. And he has made a handful, and he's produced another handful, of really very solid, very independent horror films. And this is one. And uh, it's got a lot going for it. Uh, for me, I think the first problem, and, and, and it's because it's very hard to find a new way to do this, it tells the Frankenstein story. Mm-hmm. And you actually... People that we might, horror fans might know, Joshua Leonard from the Blair Witch Project. Exactly. Pops up. He does. He plays Polidori. And he didn't he, lose his tongue after all. He didn't. <laughs> um, and he plays the money uh, behind the field surgeon's experiments. And, you know, he's recovering from PTSD. And what he really believes that he can figure out is how to bring basically uh, battle casualties back to life. Uh, and But what he doesn't ask himself is, how Polidori keeps coming up with these pieces and parts. And what I have to ask myself in almost every time, including, honestly, when I first read Mary Shelley's text, why not just bring a whole guy back? Why <laughs> cut them up and, right. and sew them together? That seems weird. That seems needless. So they don't answer that here either. The performances are good. One of the things that is is both a plus and a minus of this film is that Fessenden has a lot of sort of political thoughts and and that's what he's kind of fueling the narrative. It, and the idea is kind of, you know, how do we get to this place where we have kind of toxic masculinity? Well, you know, when, when that's what you live in and you have this sort of empty vessel and that's what you fill it with and that's, you get what you create, garbage basically. Garbage in, garbage out. Garbage right? in, garbage out. Mm-hmm. So it's a little heavy-handed in, in that approach. Uh, uh, but at least that is, I think, a fresh way to look at... Mary Shelley's text, mm-hmm. you know, of what she was saying. Um, so on the whole, I mean, I'm going to say it's got some good performances. It isn't very new or or original, um, but it's an enjoyable movie. And we should say the guy, the actor that plays the creature, Alex Bro, 
plays. He's one of the stockbrokers in Hustlers. Yeah, he's one of the creepier ones. And I suppose, or maybe I just think that because I have just previously (laughs) seen him him as the monster. (laughs) And that is depraved. And that means it's time to head to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Well, leading off the lobby this week, home video, uh, one that we loved but is a pretty polarizing movie for those that saw it. Uh, the Dead Don't Die, latest from Jim Jarmusch, the greatest zombie film cast ever disassembled. We thought it was a ball. Uh, some people did not. Right. I do think uh, one of the reasons I think that we loved it so well is because we love Jim Jarmusch. Mm-hmm. We were prepared for a Jim Jarmusch movie, and not a lot of people will because it's not like he's ever had a breakthrough smash hit. True. And he's got a particular style that he just, I mean, he really went back to, I think, an older style even to to make this film. It was a very much his kind of, if you're expecting sort of the second act to take off and to get, you know, it's not going yeah, to. Yeah, if you're it, expecting Shaun of the Dead or, or even Shaun of the Dead light, no. No, no it's, no. it's going to be deadpan, mm-hmm. slow-moving. But some great lines. Oh, my line. God. And I, I mean, loved it. Yeah, I did, too. It's Bill Murray. It's Adam Driver. It's Tilda Swinton. It's Chloe Sevigny. It's just on and on and on. Uh, Tom Waits, who, of course, is Jim Jarmusch's Iggy movie. Iggy Pop. Pop. Uh, so, yeah, if you're in for that and know what you're, what Jim Jarmusch is about, and like that, I think you will like it a lot, and you'll come away uh, quoting it as we did instantly. <laughs> Dead Don't Die is out. Another uh, music documentary, uh, we were just talking about how many we've seen this year, Echo in the Canyon, about all the music that came out of the Laurel Canyon scene in the 1960s and 1970s. Very it was fun and informative. It's, it's all about bridging the gap between those who made the music and those who are inspired by it. So you see, have, have been inspired by it. You see a lot of the newer artists recreating mm-hmm. those songs in a concert. And it's your tour guide here is Jacob Dylan, right. who interviews a lot of the people, and then he brings a lot of the uh, guest stars up on stage to do the songs. And it's very interesting, especially, again, if you're a fan of the music, and it does feature one of the very last uh, on-screen interviews with Tom Petty, right. who's in it as well. So I would recommend Echo in the Canyon. John Wick 3 is out this week. The John Wick franchise seems to just get stronger. That's right, because of all the John Wick films, this is the John Wickiest. Uh, it is, you know, it's fun. Uh, they sort of discard everything that I think they don't do particularly well, and they really focus on what they do well, mm-hmm. which is just action sequences, uh, yep. set pieces. That's right. You know, there's sword fights on horses. There's sword fights on motorcycles. There's three dogs. <laughs> there's dog fights. There's, and you know, Angelica Houston has a funny cameo. Yeah. Lawrence Fishburne is back. There's Ian McShane is back. Mark Dacascos is amazing. Those Holly two. Holly Berry, come on. Yeah. Don't, oh, don't sorry. Oh, Berry. my God. What was I thinking? <laughs> Halle Berry. It's just kind of a star-studded, incredibly stylishly directed action film. If you liked the first two, I can't imagine you won't like this one. Right, because as you said, it's the John Wickiest. It is. And it's John Wick 3. Also out, it made a couple of bucks. You might have heard Disney's live action Aladdin. We were pretty underwhelmed by it. Yeah, it's uh, it's very close to being shot for shot. It's not exactly shot for shot. And, I and thought it, the CGI was pretty weak. And what I thought the big... Well, first of all, the guy that plays Aladdin really can't sing very well. No. And he... They just don't have a lot of chemistry, the two that play no. Aladdin and Jasmine. They I think, don't. She can sing quite well. Yeah, she can. And but, Jafar uh, was yeah. a good choice. The guy yeah. who played Jafar. And those are these. Those are big shoes. I love Disney villains. Mm-hmm. Jafar is a good one. Yeah. And uh, and this guy did a great job. So And yeah. Will Smith was fine. He was. He really was. I mean, was. because talk about big shoes. Yes. 
He he was not the problem with no, this movie, no. I, I will say. And, you know, if you're going to put it on and keep the kids happy for a couple hours, it'll be fine. But, again, we were pretty uh, underwhelmed with Aladdin. Next week, uh, doesn't look like as many as this week, but still a handful. We've got Ad Astra. Yeah. Brad Pitt coming out. Also, the Downton Abbey. That's right. I cannot say. After the movie Spy, you might be, <laughs> you might be with me on this. Oh, you like my English accent, huh? I learn it from the Downton Abbey. I cannot say this title without talking about the Downton Abbey. <laughs> I, the Downton Abbey. Spy is so funny. When are they going to do Spy 2? I hope soon. Come on. Come on. Also, Rambo Last Blood. Do if they only promise, we believed it. Do they promise? Oh my I'd God. like to believe you this time. And uh, Running with the Devil. What is that? Nicolas Cage. Oh. I already saw it. I saw it like a month ago. You did? Uh-huh. Okay. I see that big smile. That'll be fun to talk about. The Wedding Year comes out, and also one I've never heard of called Zeroville. My hero, Zeroville. <laughs> we will see. That's all next week. What do you think about this week? Boy, a lot of bones to chew on. Yeah, uh, most of them good and needy. Yeah, oh yeah, it's been a good been a good week. So uh, keep the conversation going. We love to. Easiest way to find us is on Twitter. That's Mad Wolf, M-A-D-D-W-O-L-F, on Facebook and Instagram. It's Mad Wolf Columbus. And, of course, the main website where you can find all of our written reviews, other fun stuff like our horror movie only podcast called Fright Club, and even some brand new, what, some Mad Wolf gear. We've got a place there. We've got a tab to check that out, Uh, like the sweet hat that I'm wearing right now that you can't see. Anyway, (laughs) that's all at madwolf.com. So uh, keep in touch if you can. As always, thank you for stopping by the screening room. And if you have a second while you're here, please subscribe, rate, and review. And until next week, she is Hope Mad. He's George Wolf. And this is the Screening Room Podcast. See ya. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye.